Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today we're looking at Season 4, Episode 12 of Star Trek Discovery, entitled The 10C, the next to the last episode of the season. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. And I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And you can find announcements about new episodes and other content from us by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. To subscribe your app to the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And you can either subscribe right there or find links to us on other podcast sites. And Rodney, this podcast is a little bit late this week compared to usual. In part, it's because we're in the second of three weeks with both Discovery and Picard episodes, and we need to record those on different days to keep our sanity. Uh, But also because this last week was spring break at most American colleges and universities, and that also pushed our episodes back a bit. Next week, again, we have two episodes, but they'll probably, if all goes well, drop on Sunday and Monday. And after that, we'll be back to one episode a week, which most often at least will be on Sundays. That's right. And we should also note in Star Trek news that actor Paul Wesley has been cast to appear as James T. Kirk in season two of Strange New Worlds. Yes, indeed. A lot of talk online about that. I've kind of suspected that Kirk would make an appearance at some point. My guess is probably as a guest star, not a recurring character. You know, Kirk and Spock didn't really know each other that well at the beginning of the original series. And that leads me to believe that they have not known each other for like eight or 10 years, which is the time frame for Strange New Worlds. So that right. in turn suggests a guest appearance for me. Now, I've seen a promotional photo in which the new Kirk has a badge that is a different shape from the one the Enterprise crew wears, which suggests a different ship because back in that era, each ship had a different shape. And, and it wasn't a comm badge yet at that point. It was just right. a, an insignia. It's never been said on screen, but the seminal book about the original series production, The Making of Star Trek, said that Kirk commanded a previous smaller ship. I believe it was described as a destroyer class ship, which means a, a smaller support vessel. And some of the Star Trek books, the Star Trek novels, which are Compliance with them is not obligatory on the on the television production staff, but sometimes they've even uh, named the ship. I remember one in which Kirk's previous ship was named the Lydia Sutherland, and those are both the names of ships commanded by Captain Horatio Hornblower in C.S. Oh, okay. Forrester's novels, which uh, Gene Roddenberry liked a lot. Right. So, but again, that that, that's not mandatory on the on the TV production series. But we will we will see about the appearance, and that'll be a while down the road, maybe a year from now or so, when we see the new James T. Kirk. So if you're right, and I bet you are, Kirk's ship and Pike's ship will cross paths at some point. Yeah. But even if it's a guest appearance, that's pretty exciting stuff. My guess is maybe one or two episodes. Okay, well, uh, to get things started with this episode of Discovery, we'll have a brief plot outline here of this episode, the 10C, and with our summary, here is Professor Michael Merrick. 
Discovery, with Book's ship perched unseen on the outside, approaches the hyperfield and sprays a hydrocarbon compound onto the surface of the hyperfield that is believed to be um, a 10C pheromone that they've determined carries the meaning of peacefulness. The field responds with its own pheromones and lights, which the Discovery crew eventually determines to be a basic form of mathematical communication. Using math symbolism, the 10C ask why the DMA was destroyed and Discovery communicates back that the DMA causes them great fear. On Book's ship, Tarka ends up taking control and locking Book away with Jet Reno, who you remember Tarka took captive last week. And Book is finally, finally getting a clue that Tarka can't be trusted. Tarka uses Technobabble to get away from the hold that the 10C has on Discovery. And he's on his way to destroy the DMA controller, which will probably wipe out the hyperfield, the 10C, and oh, by the way, Discovery. The 10C appears to express regret about the damage the first DMA did, so they may have empathy, but when Bookship breaches their defenses, they discontinue communication because they see the resulting danger. Reno manages to get a message through to Discovery, you have to stop us, whatever it takes. Okay. That's the end of the episode, yeah. So another cliffhanger this week, huh? Exactly. Okay, well, before we talk about the philosophy, the themes, and the morals in this story, there are a few things we'd like to talk about. We're going to try to avoid Easter eggs because so many articles out there are doing a fine job in that area. Yeah, and Rodney, I thought this was a very creative story about using mathematics to communicate between alien species. So kudos Kudos to the science advisors of this series. Uh, There has been lots of writing, scientific writing and popular account writing about such a possibility using the basics of math, which presumably anybody's going to understand and and then conveying meaning with that. Even the plaques on the, the Voyager spacecraft that have left the solar system have mathematical messages included in them. But with the help of the Trek science advisors, Discovery has shown us it's really a fascinating story about actual communication via the meaning that can be carried by the understanding of math. Right. I I agree completely. Um, This episode reminded me of that 2016 movie, Arrival. Some of our listeners may have seen that in which uh, Amy Adams tries to find a way to communicate with extraterrestrial visitors, and it can make for an interesting story. And there's also Contact, the Jodie Foster movie, which was based on a novel by Carl Sagan, which also has mathematical components, at least, in communicating with aliens. Right. And one thing I wanted to point out about this story that I found interesting is that in Star Trek, as fans know, we have the universal translator, and the function is that of that is to enable these different species to communicate so that we can have a plot unfold. Here, finding a way to communicate is the plot. And, you know, it occurs to me that this was the situation oftentimes in the series Enterprise. Of course, they were just setting off into the, you know, galaxy for the first time. But this is unique. I think this goes into far greater detail. And I I feel like our patience is finally being rewarded, Michael. I think 
the writers are doing something different here, something we don't usually see in Star Trek. It's creative. And I think that's good for the franchise, right? And it it's also just an aspect of that theme of connection, which we've been tracking this season in Discovery. So I'm sure we'll have more to say about that a, a little later. Yeah. And I also like the idea of an alien species that sends out ideas, in this case, the pheromones, and then tells you the sequence mm. in which to interpret the ideas. Right, the I lines. can imagine them communicating that way in their natural lives, although they're doing it at a very basic level to communicate with discovery. But I could imagine that they use pheromones and then some kind of bioluminescence to make the lights that convey part of the interpretation. By the way, I wasn't clear if the lights we saw were literally one of the 10C or if they were produced artificially, if there were some kind of construct that had approached discovery to communicate. You know, I don't think that was clear to me either. The view we got of one of the 10C was really murky. So it's very hard to tell. At one point early in this process, the 10C transmits a pattern of lights and colors, which discovery sends back. Did that remind you of anything? Um. Do, 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 do. Oh. <laughs> right, 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 you know, of course. Remember in Close Encounters, that's what they did. The aliens landed on the north side of Devil's Tower where the road doesn't go. And mm -hmm. they did these lights and sounds. And the first thing the humans did was just repeat them back. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Harai finally has a purpose in this episode, and he really shows his expertise as a as a, a linguist, or maybe we say a xenolinguist. I don't remember what they described him as, and has a significant role on this episode. So what it suggested to me that we've seen some scenes in previous episodes where he didn't seem to do much, but I think that they just put those there so he wouldn't come out of nowhere in this episode. Oh, that's a good point. That would have been weird and awkward. My thoughts about Harai, you know, Rilak in an earlier episode talked to him about his bedside manner. And I felt like he really integrated well with the crew on this mission now. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. before this, he was just this uh, cipher who snacked a lot, but now he seems like, you know, a trustworthy member of the Starfleet team here on this mission. Yeah, I also like the idea of getting the bridge crew together to brainstorm the problems. And it's Kayla mm -hmm. is the one who saves the day, actually, by suggesting that the light patterns are the key to decoding the meaning of the pheromones. Yeah, they're working together. It seems to me, maybe, this, this is my impression, that the writers are trying to do a little more with the co-stars this season. And I do appreciate that. I, I still, though, I have to admit, I yearn for a more ensemble approach, you know, like we saw under Berman, uh, not getting that quite yet, you know, maybe someday. I you know, know, I think some of this is a product of the storytelling approach that they've chosen for Discovery, which is the season long story arc that is the, the, the A story of each episode. Um, when the A story is the season long story arc, it may be harder to give each character time in the limelight, as opposed to when the story arc is the B story in each episode, which is what we see in a lot of other series that do have ensemble casts. Because when the A story is the main story, 
Discovery has to focus on the characters that are most important to the A story. Mm -hmm. And while, yeah, in some of our episodes this season, the other cast has had significant roles to play, but sometimes they've been completely absent. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's right. So we'll see if Strange New Worlds gives us a better ensemble because they have said they're going to use an episodic structure in which the story arc among the characters is the B story. So I say all of that, but then I also have to acknowledge that Picard, uh, both last season and this season, has a story arc that is primarily the A story. And they do seem to have significant roles for each regular character. There maybe aren't quite so many of them to be able to do that. But I think a significant part of it is the requirements of the the way they've structured the season. Yeah, no, that does make sense to me, Michael. It occurs to me that in a lot of those uh, earlier series, like in The Next Generation, you could tell at some point of the episode, oh, okay, this is going to be a Wharf episode, mm-hmm. or this is going to be a Deanna Troy episode, or a you know Riker episode. That's going to be harder to do with a, a serial approach. Yeah, that, and, that seems right to me. And Next Generation was right at the time that the television industry was transitioning to this story arc approach. Before that, you know, original series, for example, all through the 60s and most of the 70s, the networks wanted shows that could be played in any order because when they did summer reruns, they didn't want to have to worry about playing shows in the same order they originally aired and wanted to be able to drop some out. So you had less changes in the characters over time. So the Borg, for example, where we had seeds planted one or two times before they actually appeared. That was one of the first examples in television as a whole, other than soap operas, of a story arc that came back. For a long time, it was, you know, we'll do it now and then during the season. And of course, now for for many series and many particularly science fiction series, it is an ongoing story across the entire season or longer. The 10C putting our Discovery folks on a simulation of Discovery Bridge. It was interesting. I have to note also that it saves production money because it allows the producers to work on a standing set rather than create some kind of new environment. And, you know, these episodes cost not just hundreds of thousands, but but probably well over a million dollars, maybe millions to produce each one. But still, every time you create a new environment the characters need to be in, it costs a lot of money. It works in this story, but so yeah, there's also a kind of a real life production consideration that makes it behind the scenes beneficial as well as part of the story. And it also explains why the 10C scanned a Discovery's Bridge earlier in the episode. I mean, they use that information to create that environment that the crew or whoever would board it would be comfortable in. And I just wanted to mention, it did remind me of that room that the space aliens in 2001, a space odyssey prepared for David Bowman at the end of that movie. And as I recall in Arthur Clarke's novel, at least Bowman speculates that it was created for him to make him feel comfortable. But Mm -hmm. in the film, (laughs) Stanley Kubrick chose that creepy music composed by Ligeti for the scene in which Bowman arrives there. Very creepy. Yeah. At the time that movie came out, the sequence of Bowman traveling through the Stargate 
you know, and ending up in that room, but traveling through the Stargate. And that was Ligeti's music, Atmospheres was the name of the piece. And, and it was very new, experimental, not harmonious, melodic music. At the time the movie came out, it was called The Ultimate Trip. <laughs> and it, the, the sequence of going through the Stargate goes on for minutes. I don't know how long it takes. It goes on and on and on. It is not an action adventure movie as we would see today. <laughs> Right. But it it was really a seminal movie in terms of science fiction and movie making for science fiction. One other thing that we'll reflect on, we are told that the atomic number of isolinium is 178. I noticed that. If you look at today's periodic table, I believe the highest numbered element we have is 118, 118. Organesson, I think it's been officially named. All of the elements around there on the periodic table are not found naturally. Right. They're only found when we like create them in accelerators or things like that. And they break down almost immediately. And, you know, pretty much all of the elements with higher atomic numbers do that. It's a radiation process, kind of like uranium, but they break mm -hmm. down rapidly. In the Star Trek universe, apparently there are stable elements with higher atomic numbers than we know now that we will, or in the Star Trek timeline, discover in the future. Well, stick around for that. But why don't we go ahead and start talking about then the uh, underlying meaning or meanings of this episode? What messages did the writers and producers want us to take away from this? And Rodney, you mentioned earlier the season-long theme of connections, and that is certainly at the forefront in this episode. Obviously, they're trying to make the connection with the 10th mm Sea, -hmm. but in the other subplots, we see many examples too. Culber and Stamets are talking about what they'll do after the crisis. That reflects self-care, taking care of others, which is an aspect of connections. Tarina reflects on being reluctant to go into danger with someone she's fond mm. of, Saru, and says maybe that's why she avoids closeness with others. Of course, Connections has an emotional consideration that the Vulcans would not be fond of either. <laughs> but that statement to Saru makes her sound a bit like Picard's reasons for not making connections mm. this season in, uh, in Star Trek Picard, which we're talking about in the other set of podcasts uh, we're doing right now. And then Book refers to trust is everything and tells the story about how he is the fifth courier to use the name Cleveland Booker. And he says the measure of someone is how they honor their promises, which again, I think is in this ballpark of connections and connecting with people. Right. In this case, uh, connections being forged in this courier network. Yeah. And another thing I would mention is um, empathy gets another mention here in this episode. They conclude that since the Tensi has communicated sadness at the news that that is the crew of the Discovery reacted with fear at the DMA. They speculate that that means they're capable of empathy. And we even Booker can empathize with the Tensi, I think, because he tells Tarka that he will not do to the Tensi what the Tensi did to Quajon. And of course, empathy is, is, is an important aspect of uh, yeah. connection and closeness. And of course, that gets into what happened between Book and Tarka 
in this episode, Reno observes that they have both made dubious choices Mm -hmm. because they're both in pain and they can't really see it. They're not acknowledging their pain. Again, this week, Reno has a story from her past. The upshot is that in doing things for others, we're really doing them for ourselves uh, to address our own motivations and goals. And again, her conclusion is that pain makes people blind. Pain can also make people do strange or weird or or often really bad things in our own world today. Uh, Rodney, has anyone ever told you, oh, you shouldn't be upset about this? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I have. And it didn't cause me to be less upset. If anything, it caused me to be worse. When people mm-hmm. try to discount or dismiss our pain when other people do, I don't think it helps. It's an attempt to devalue our unhappiness, to, to devalue our pain, and it does not in any way help us work through it. It doesn't really help with communication either. It kind of shuts it down when, when people respond like that, doesn't it, Michael? Yeah, I remember a case. I'm not going to name names. It it would be someone you know, Rodney, but I was unhappy about something. And I essentially told a couple of people that I hadn't been able to get much sleep last night because I was so upset about this. And one person in particular said, oh, you shouldn't be upset. You shouldn't be upset about that. Doesn't do anything to help. And it just makes it worse. Didn't help you feel connected to that person, did it? No, no, <laughs> not at all. General Nadoya also uh, has some interesting comments for Burnham. She says that soldiers have to accept when they have hit a wall. And Burnham replies she used to think that there was no wall. That's the don't believe in the no-win scenario or from Galaxy Quest, the never give up, never surrender. Mm, Right. But she says as captain, her experience has taught her otherwise the implication is that she thinks the important thing is knowing when it is impossible to move forward. And thinking about that, it struck me that, you know, I think it's likely that Michael Burnham never took the Kobayashi Maru test. I know that you're tired of hearing about Kobayashi Maru, (laughs) right? But remember, she didn't attend Starfleet Academy. She was allowed to join Starfleet based on her training on Vulcan. So she may be before season one of Discovery never really had to face that no-win scenario, that question of how we face up to failure. That's a good point. I thought it was interesting that she says that she has learned some things about that. And uh, Burnham and Saru talk about the difficulty of coping with the lack of control. And that's kind of the funny scene, the humorous scene. Saru demonstrates what Tarka taught him about yelling as a method of stress relief. And it's really funny that they showed grudge not liking that and yeah. you know, getting up and walking off. Then Burnham and Saru agree that there is no one they would rather go into this situation with than each other. But I can't help remember in season one, Saru did not trust Burnham. He told her to her face that she was dangerous. And I think the writers would rather that we forget that. Mm. And they never really did provide a rationale for how they became so close when they were deliberately intentionally antagonistic in season one that's right I, I you know as i recall back in season two is when burnham and saru became significantly closer but i also recall never really quite buying that during season two yeah they didn't give us a reason it just became their relationship yeah and i'm happier that way i'm happy with them being close like that but uh, they never really quite explained it 
Yeah, I agree. Well, why don't we move on to some final thoughts or conclusions about this particular episode? Well, as I said above, this episode had a really creative approach to communication employing mathematics. So again, I want to say kudos to the science advisors of the series. I'm sure a lot of the time they just help write the technobabble, but this goes way beyond that. I mean, it was based on, I'm sure, a lot of scientific literature and research as to the possibilities. And they provided the, the actual episode writers with really strong and, and elegant and interesting source material for that communication process. We still don't really know what the 10C are. You know, um, you, know you mentioned Contact earlier, the yeah. film. Now, I mean, in that movie, we, we never really learned anything about the Vegans, did we? And that could happen here, I think, Michael. I mean, if, if Discovery really is like a bug in a jar, <laughs> as Nilsson put it, you might remember that. I mean, the 10C might be on our understanding and their understanding. So we may not be able to learn much about them. I think I'd be okay with that because that would make some sense. We have occasionally met other species where the outcome of the episode is essentially, you know, come look for us in 10,000 years. Maybe you'll be ready then. So it's possible. You know, I did mention plot devices earlier, and I, I have to acknowledge the one that maybe bugs me the most. But it is not just this season of Discovery or this episode. It's something that is almost ubiquitous across all of Star Trek. And that is what I call the artificial deadline. It's four hours before the DMA starts right. to hit Earth. Yep. This implies that there's no effect before four hours is up, and then boom, the effect is disastrous. And that's not how it works. There is rarely a deadline that is so predictable we can get down to the minute or, in some cases, even the hour. And in science, There's this thing called the inverse square law. The effect of any energy field, the strength uh, of energy field or or pretty much anything else changes with distance from the source. Okay, it's called the inverse square law. So if your math is rusty, here's kind of what it means. In Star Trek, there's this thing over there that's emitting some kind of technobabble radiation or signals. And we take a reading on it. We get a strength on it. And then we go twice as far away and take a reading. And the inverse square law says twice as far, the signal is a quarter as strong. Hmm. Right. Uh, That sounds like gravity. Yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. But it's true for any, I mean, it's true for Wi-Fi. Go twice as far away from your router and the signal's a quarter as strong. And Star Trek has used this kind of artificial countdown deadline for years, all, you know, all the way back to the original series to build suspense. It's a plot device because it's something that strengthens the story or that we need for the story. You know, what was it? Psy 2000, where Scotty had to jump start the warp engines in a way that couldn't be done because you can't start the warp engine cold. And if not, we're 30 minutes spiral into the, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it's an artificial deadline. It may be, it may be fine for the story, but there is rarely a bright line between everything's fine and total destruction, except in Star Trek. Another plot device that we saw, but they didn't, me- they didn't even mention as such, we saw it. Tarka has a personal force field. Did you notice that he has a personal <laughs> force field? 
He used yeah. it to bounce book around when book finally confronts him. Uh, it's kind of red, orange, glowy. In some of the scenes, it's only around his legs, I assume, because the top part was what was slamming book across the room. Rodney, you said in a previous podcast that Tarka is constantly pulling out tech from behind his back, figuratively speaking, <laughs> kind of like the 1960s cartoon characters right. would. A plot device was apparently thought to be necessary here because in a fair fight, Book could whoop Tarka. You know, oh, yeah, no you know, doubt. Tarka's no a doubt. scientist, Book's a, a courier who uh, has to be an action hero and things like that. So they needed right. it for Tarka to be able to overcome Book but never mentioning it before, you know, pulling it out of if thin air, creating out of whole cloth is not ideal. It's kind of lazy, isn't it? I, I, I don't know. I mean, the way they plot out these series, you know, we mentioned Harai being inserted into previous episodes so he would not just come out of nowhere. You mm -hmm. could have hinted in a previous episode about that, not necessarily shown it, but have him mention something in passing. Um, you could have had him just pull out a phaser and stun book, but this way we had the special effects and book being thrown all over the bridge. And, uh, is it lazy? Is it a compromise because of the needs of the plot? If it's, Hey, this will be cool. If we do this, I would rather not have things just appear out of thin air or have requirements. Like we got to go back on discovery and plant this patch manually come out of nowhere. I agree. There often could be different ways to do it. So, Rodney, I'm wondering now if the story arc of this season will be complete at the end of the next episode, which is the final episode of the season, or whether maybe it will continue into the next season. If they conclude it next week, they have to do at least three things. They've got to stop okay. Tarka and probably in some way, shape, or form give him his comeuppance. Please. Uh, they need to convince the 10C that the DMA is doing bad things and get them to turn it off, not just to say, oh, I'm sorry, but we need to keep doing this, get them to turn it off. And to me, that means that they have to come up with some way for the 10C to figure out how to generate the power they need without killing millions or billions of people with the DMA. And I'm a little worried that if they do all of that next week, it might be what fans call a hurry up ending. Yeah, it's a lot. So I'm wondering if that's going to happen. And they may be able to do it in a very good way, uh, that it isn't automatically going to be a bad story if they do all of those things in the episode. But I think it would also open the door to a cliffhanger that would be resolved next season. Yeah, I was expecting that this story arc would come to a close at the end of this season, because that's, I believe, what we're accustomed to seeing. But that is going to be a really busy episode, um, as you're pointing out. Yeah. I mean, you know, Discovery going into the future was, was a cliffhanger, but it was also a resolution of a storyline. That's um, true. Well, we'll see if they are able to resolve the storyline here, even if there's something to anticipate for next season. And I guess we'll find out. Because of the date on which this podcast is dropping, we'll know pretty soon. That's right. <laughs> and That's then right. we will fairly shortly after have a podcast about it. Yep. Yep. And we welcome you to join us as you did this week. And we thank you for that. So we'll have two more podcasts coming up here. Uh, first about Picard, of course, and then a day or so later about Discovery. Uh, we anticipate those will drop 
uh, Sunday and then Monday. If all goes well. Right. If all goes well. And then after that, we'll be back to one podcast a week. Now you can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next time.